Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day in the new year that we can come before you to sit at your feet and to listen to your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Very good afternoon. Happy New Year. I'm so glad that you have made the time to come here on the second day of New Year and for you to, uh, um, you know, honor the, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Father who is in heaven in that sense. And I think it's always appropriate to do it, especially at the Chinese New Year. But I understand that people oftentimes have obligations that uh, may preclude the fact that they can come. But nonetheless, you are here and you will be blessed, I hope and pray. And today we're going to continue in our series on the Ten Commandments. And this week, the second commandment is, You shall not make for yourself any idol. As you know, I've called and entitled this series, uh, Perfect Ten. And understanding that, you know, the law of God is given to us as a perfect law. And that we are called as His people to obey it perfectly. But we know that we often fall short. And as we go through the law, ultimately it shows us our total need for God. And that's why we cling to the gospel, the good news that God gives us. And, uh, you know, in this era of counterfeits, where now counterfeit, not just fake money, fake handbags, there's even fake uh, news that uh, we um, try to come to terms with. There's also the issue of fake gods. And we want to look at it. And, you know, sometimes Chinese New Year seems like an appropriate time to address idolatry, but not always in the way you think. This is one of my relatives, <laughs> Karen's nephew, uh, Tyson, yeah. <laughs> well, in one way, that's an idol. But sometimes children can be our idol as well. There are ways in which, and he's holding Ang Pao, right? So money, the God of money can be an idol. Last week, we talked about how, um, you know, mammon is a god in and of itself. But today, you know, we don't only want to consider what it means to have no other gods. And, and as we know from last week, God is whoever you put your faith and trust in. But the issue is the issue of idolatry. And uh, in particular, we are looking at the passage in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. And I want to take time to look at that. But just to rehearse... Let's look at what the commandment actually says. This is Exodus 20, verses 4 and 6. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is above in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity... Sorry, visiting the iniquity of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And that's pretty straightforward on many levels. And in some ways, you know, it really reiterates the first commandment. 
And that's why uh, in certain Christian traditions, they actually uh, um, put these two commandments together. But in our tradition, the Anglican and the Reformed tradition, we tend to put them apart. And I think there's a reason for it, you know. Uh, Like I said last week, I, I don't like to split hairs about how you number the commandments because essentially they're the same commandments irrespective of how you number them. Uh, they're still there, and there are still ten words which the Lord spoke. But, you know, we see it as we uh, pick up this story, and let's put it into its context. You know, you get to Exodus 32. It comes in the context of what God has already spoken. And uh, if you read on in Exodus 21, 22, 23, you know, um, God continues to elaborate to Moses how these commandments ought to be obeyed talking about the, the type of worship and, and more uh, specifics are being told. But then you get to uh, Exodus 24, and this is what Moses says to the people, and he tells them, he told the people all the words of the Lord, you know, and telling them what they hadn't heard. They heard directly from God the ten words. But the elaboration after God spoke to Moses, and Moses came down and told them about all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> that was their intention. That was how their hearts were. You know, they'd seen God deliver them out of Egypt, cross through the Red Sea. They're now on their way to the Promised Land, and they meet God at His mountain, Holy Mountain, Mount Sinai. And, you know, they've, they've seen and they've heard God. And uh, if you read the account, you know, the spectacular things are happening. Well, then Moses uh, uh, says to the Israelites, he continues verses 12 to 18 in Exodus 24, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone. He hadn't written the the law down yet, and he was about to do that. And uh, the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. But then he said to the elders before he went up, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. He deputized Aaron and Hur. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain uh, in the sight of the people of Israel. You think about that. It's even better and more spectacular than any fireworks you may have seen, you know, on uh, New Year's Eve. But Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the context. So Moses has departed. And he's gone up to the mountain to continue to hear from God, to receive the tablets uh, from the Lord. And I'm going to show you a clip from the Ten Commandments, Cecil D. DeMille's masterpiece. And the people sinned a great sin, for they had made them a god of gold. And they bore him upon their shoulders and rejoiced, saying, This be our God, O Israel. Are you mourners of Moses afraid to face the new God of gold? They were as children who had lost their faith. They were perverse and crooked. 
and rebellious against God. They did eat the bread of wickedness and drank the wine of violence, and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the people cried, The graven image hath brought us joy. And they worshipped the golden calf and sacrificed unto it. Now, this is some artistic license, obviously. But, uh, you know, the spectacular cinematography nonetheless highlights to us that they forgot. Forgot what they said just 40 days earlier. They had said, you know, they answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And immediately, they broke the first two commandments. Right? You shall have no gods before me and you shall not make any idols. They went ahead and did that. Why did they forget? Let's look at the passage to see. It starts out in verse 1. It says, When the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, arise, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So you see, on the one hand, it could have been impatience. Moses was delayed. But may I suggest to you, really the controlling root emotion was fear. It was fear. Because don't forget, they had for generations been slaves in Egypt. Not a very good life, but it was a sheltered life nonetheless where they didn't have to fend for themselves. Moses was leading them. Moses had 40 years in the wilderness, uh, you know, behaving uh, when he had to run after he had killed that uh, Egyptian. And he was in exile and he learned how to wander through the wilderness. That is why I think God selected him and picked him and was actually equipping him to lead his people. And, you know, Moses was no longer there. So they found themselves in a strange situation, in a strange land, stuck in the desert. And this is why they called out, make us gods who will go before us. You know, before this, they had gotten to this place. God had already been leading them by a cloud by day and a fire by night. And I imagine when they dwelt there, all that disappeared for a time. And so fear welled up in their hearts. And listen, remember the first word that God spoke to them. He says, I am the Lord your God, what? who delivered you out of Egypt. What do the people of God say now? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. They've forgotten it is God who led them out. Their focus was on a man. And this man uh, who was Moses. And, you know, skipping through verses 2 and 3, Aaron told them, take your rings of gold, and on your ears and wives and sons and daughters, bring them to me. And he threw it into the fire, and then he fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Then he said to the people of God, O Israel, who, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Notice what has happened. They started out understanding that it is the Lord God who led them out of Egypt. In their fear, they only remembered that it was Moses that led them. And now, in seeking an idol, they were trying to replace Moses 
with something else that was very tangible. This idol. These are the gods of Israel who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This was Aaron's words. This was Aaron saying to them, but you know, Aaron, I don't know how you feel about him. Obviously, this is a failure of leadership on his part. But sometimes I wonder, you know, maybe I shouldn't judge Aaron too harshly because his intention was good, right? Because when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it as they normally had altars when they worshipped God. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now in our English Bibles, especially when they uh, translate the word Lord, to let you know that this is actually the uh, word which is used for God's name, Yahweh, they always capitalize the word Lord. So that you know this is uh, uh, the name which is particular to God. And not just any generic God or Lord. And in this case, you can see that Aaron's desire was still to worship Yahweh. Still to worship the Lord. But to do that, he found something else to represent Yahweh and created this idol. It's an instinct I think that, you know, is not just confined to Aaron. And in a sense, the reason I don't judge him so harshly because I realize this is a human instinct. And this is particularly what is said in uh, uh, Romans chapter 1, a passage we know well. I think we use this because there's a lot of interference with the uh, wireless... In Romans 1, we can see that, you know, the um, um, Apostle Paul is pointing out that despite the fact that God is evident to all, they have left it aside and in in many ways have uh, turned aside from God. And the point he he makes there is that they have become uh, futile in their thinking and, and in their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is because of the condition we have of, as original sin, as sinners uh, uh, right from the Garden of Eden, this desire to you know, find our own way. And because of this, we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And in many ways, we are familiar with it because in our context... I'm not sure how many of you still have non-Christian family members. You go visit them, you will see, you know, there is this uh, human desire to fashion for ourselves idols. And, and in, in many ways, it's, it's a God-given instinct because, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that eternity has been placed in the hearts of men. There is a desire to reach out for the divine. But because instead of seeking God for who He is, we have a tendency to want to fashion idols, and that's what happens. You see, and Paul understood this because this was the history of the people of God. I told you last week, and it's reiterated here in Second Kings 17. It's really coming to the end of the era where there were kings, and they were about to go into exile, and God had pointed out how they had abandoned the worship of God. And this is what he said, They rejected his decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. 
They followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And if you read on in 2 Kings 17, you see the account of them raising up Asherah poles and uh, erecting Baals to bow down and worship them. And in essence, people who worship worthless idols are ultimately worthless people, is what it said. And the reason they do that is because they were basically imitating the nations around them. But like I said, you know, the fact of the matter is, if you read later on into Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about the fact that there are idols of the heart. And this is what the reformers talked about, that, you know, our hearts are idol factories. There is this great instinct to make God in our own image. That we want a God that we can uh, understand. A God that we can sense, in a sense that we can touch, taste, smell, hear and see. That's why the people of God made an idol because they were not content worshipping a God who was invisible to them. A God who wasn't uh, uh, there in the way that uh, they could understand or they could interact with in the normal sense. And the unknowable is often a threat to us. We much rather have something we can control. We much rather reduce God to formulas. And it's not just people who of other religions who do that. May I suggest to you, even as Christians, we do too. That sometimes we can come up with formulas, if we do this, then God will do that. And we begin to try and uh, reduce it to that. And this is precisely, you know, the problem with the people of God. That's why Elijah, remember, in his encounter with the Baals, he was warning the people of God, why, how long will you waver between two opinions? It is not that the people of God had given up the worship of Yahweh. They had tried to make Yahweh in their own image. And I think at the heart, that is what idolatry is. It is making God in our own image. Making God that we can understand. Making God, uh, in a sense, I know we don't claim to control God, but we want to be able to control how uh, 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 we meet with God. And we want a God on our own terms, as opposed to a God who comes to us on His terms and we have to conform to them. You see, we always, uh, or we are prone to forgetting who this God is. And our hearts are prone to wander. I told you uh, in, in uh, 1993, a year after Karen and I were married, we had the um, privilege and joy of going on a tour of the Holy Land. And we went to visit uh, Israel. And in particular, one of the highlights for me was we visited this park called Neot Kidomim. And the uh, idea of Neot Kidomim was that it was meant to be a, a, a park where they used biblical principles for agriculture, you know, to uh, show that what the Bible says works. And they had a guide. Now, understand this, the guide uh, was of um, um, Jewish origin, but she was actually a secular Jew, an atheist, and she told us she was an atheist. We were a Christian group from Chapel of the Resurrection, so she knew we were Christians. 
And, you know, but she understood her Bible very well. And she taught a lot of things, but the lesson that stuck with me, and I've actually shared it with you all before, was a lesson in which, you know, she asked the question, how is it that these Israelites, that the people of God who had seen God's miraculous hand at work, you know, we often think, at least I do, I don't know if you do, I think, you know, if God had delivered me through the Red Sea, and then later on, also delivered me, you know, uh, from all the different things. I'd been at the march of Jericho, and I saw the walls come down without me laying a hand on it, just marching around it seven times. And, uh, you know, then getting to the River Jordan, and the Jordan parted again, it's a repetition of the Red Sea. I would have thought, you know, my heart is protected and sealed, and I would continue to worship the Lord my God all the days of my life. But we know, of course, like I have said, you know, they erected Asherah poles and began to worship the Baals, who are the gods of that land. They fell into idolatry. The first two commandments they broke. Why? And she said, think about it like this. This people of God started out as slaves. Then they became nomads, 40 years in the desert, wandering in the wilderness, Now they've entered the promised land and suddenly they are told to become farmers. And they have no history of doing that. They have no knowledge of how to cultivate the land, though it was a land flowing with milk and honey. You know that there was a necessity for them to, you know, uh, uh, do the work of agriculture. So what do you do? And, And she said, painted a picture like this. You know, imagine you turn... And you look at your neighbor who's a Canaanite. And they've been for generations tilling the land. And you look at your crops and your crops don't seem to be working. And you look at your neighbor and your neighbor seems to be doing well. What would you do? You'd go over to them and you ask them, Hey, tell me your secret. How is it your your crops are so healthy and mine are barely making it? And they would tell you, oh, the principles. But they say, I tell you, wait, wait, wait. There's one most important thing you must do. In the corner of my field, can you see that pole there? That pole is erected to the goddess Asherah, the goddess of fertility. And we have a little idol down there, the Baal. We must give offerings to the Baal. And you know, if you do this, you will find that your crops will prosper. And she pointed out to us, you know, it was out of fear, out of concern, out of wanting to Uh, uh, um, find themselves a way to live in an unfamiliar situation, the temptation then is to follow the nations around them. The fear of the unknown can be a crippling thing. And in some ways, you know, as we stop and think about it, we may not have those same fears that the people of God in Israel had. But we understand fear well. I mean, I don't know about you, I, in the last two days, I cannot open any news app without seeing the uh, fearsome spread of this Wuhan coronavirus. And there is concern. You know, uh, my daughter Rachel is still in Toronto. She was supposed to come back Tuesday and supposed to come back through uh, Guangzhou uh, because she was flying China Southern, asked her to change her flight. <laughs> you know, please don't come back uh, through China she took the advantage of that and said, okay, since I have to buy a new ticket, I'll extend another two weeks. So 
<laughs> she won't be back till February, but she's going to fly direct uh, from Toronto to San Francisco, San Francisco Street to Singapore. Hopefully, you know, uh, uh, um, avoiding anything. But then now I hear that the US is intending to um, bring all of their people who are in Wuhan still straight back to San Francisco. So I don't know what San Francisco will be like in two weeks' time. But you know, if we allow fear to control us and to forget who is our God and who's ultimately in control and who, to whom we owe our health and our life, it can become crippling. And we could resort to all kinds of means to make sure that we are safe. That may, at times, I'm not saying ignore basic uh, um, health and hygiene. Yes, do that. But you know what I mean, right? Someone would say, oh, take this amulet, you know, <laughs> this will save you, this will help you, or, you know, do this, or something or other. And we can easily slip into uh, practices in which we end up in idolatry. And I could go on and on. It could be the coming economic recession. No, I'm not a prophet. I'm not saying it will happen. <laughs> but we don't know. You know, with all these uh, uh, uncertainties around the globe, how it's going to affect the economy. Or some of you are getting back exam results or have gotten back exam results. And you worry about your future and there's a temptation then to imitate the nations around us, to look to others to see what they do to survive and to thrive. And to forget what God has said, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. It is God to whom we look, not your pastor or leader as the people of God <laughs> were looking to Moses. Not your own clever thinking that delivered you. Not even, may I suggest, your strong faith. You see, it is not your faith that saves you. Rather, it is the one in whom you place your faith that has saved you. That's why, you know, God, uh, Jesus talks about the fact that even if your faith is the size of a mustard seed... He says, it doesn't matter how big your faith is. What matters is how big the God is that you place your faith in. We need to understand that we cannot pursue substitutes. Substitutes for God who is the real God because counterfeits are worthless. And if we're not careful, ultimately we become what we worship. And this is the God that we worship. The God who loved us so much that He came down to earth for us and ultimately went to a cross on our behalf where He said, it is finished. I've reminded you that this year is a year of discipleship and that's what discipleship ultimately is about. You know, as you think about the people of God in uh, Moses' day, in many ways, I have a lot of sympathy for them. And I, you know, we need to be careful that we don't judge them uh, too harshly because the reality, it is easy for us to turn aside and to abandon our beliefs, especially in the light of our fears. And that's why, you know, we need to be discipled. There's a saying which goes like this, you can take the people out of Egypt, but you also need to take Egypt 
out of the people. In other words, you can take a person out of their circumstance, you bring them into the church, you share the gospel with them, and they have become Christians. But the culture from which they have come often has a stronghold and draws them back in. And that's why, you know, we uh, um, see that discipleship is so important. Discipleship in discipleship that we help people reorientate ourselves to really understand what it means to call uh, our Lord God, what it means to be His people. And that's why in this year of 2020, one of the things that we are really working on and are continuing to uh, build and, and help to become more intentional are our care groups. Now, I know the majority of you are in care groups, but there are some who have chosen not to be part of it, and I would urge you to reconsider because I believe that care groups are important and essential part of discipleship, that you need to have a community of faith to build your faith. Right? To have people who are like-minded and have same values to help you sort through the things you will inevitably come across as you go through this year of 2020 and beyond. And ultimately, to teach you how to live out Matthew eleven twenty-eight, which is our theme verse for the year. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. This is the God to whom we worship. This is the God that we need to cling to, the one who offers us deliverance and who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. And in a moment, we're going to close because, you know, it's Chinese New Year and I don't know if you still have more family obligations, so I don't want to keep you too long. But I feel as we uh, move on, before we move on in the service, let's not move too quickly. Let's take a moment to allow the Lord to speak to us, to challenge us if we have erected idols. And for the majority of us here, the idols are not out there. <laughs> you know, we, we, we may not have erected idols in the normal sense of the word in, in our, our, our minds and what the culture is, but the reality is all of us, in some way, shape or form, may have erected idols in our hearts. And this God who forgives all who truly repents opens his arms wide and says to us, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. All you need to do is to repent of your idols, to lay them down and to recognize who your God is. And to come to him afresh. Let him assure you in the midst of your fears, the concerns that you may have, that he is a God that we can cling to and that we can trust and believe with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. I invite you to respond to the word of God as we stand and as we sing this call.